from artificial intelligence and machine learning to virtual reality and wearable technology, disruptive tech has been at the forefront of markets and investors' minds. So how are investors and tech founders alike approaching trends in technological innovation during a time of stress in the markets and in the banking sector? There's still a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines. Great businesses are being built. There's true adoption of technology and real need. I just think we got into some crazy heady heights in 2021 and we're correcting from that, and rightly so. I'm Alison Nathan, and this is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. In this special episode recorded from Goldman Sachs' Disruptive Technology Symposium in London, my colleague Cliff Marriott, co-head of the Technology, Media and Telecommunications Group in EMEA for Global Banking and Markets, spoke with Ophelia Brown, founder and managing partner for Blossom Capital, an early-stage venture capital firm. Cliff and Ophelia explain how founders of tech startups across Europe are navigating the stress in the banking sector, the types of emerging technologies they're most excited about, and how investors are approaching opportunities in the current environment. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Cliff Marriott. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Ophelia Brown. Ophelia, thank you for being here on Exchanges. Thank you for having me. The focus of our panel today was investing in a time of constant disruption. The turbulence in the banking sector has certainly been disruptive, especially over the last few weeks. What are you hearing from founders about how this turmoil is impacting their business? I think there was a specific 72 hours, maybe slightly longer, that shocked founders. I think no one anticipated what happened that weekend. And I think there were some stark lessons learned by founders about cash management, diversification, cash. I mean, it's a story that ends well, which is good for all of them. But I think there will be some profound lessons taken away as to treasury management, liquidity management, diversification of their assets. We can talk specifically about Credit Suisse and what has happened since. I think that's less concerning for technology startups. I think the question is the contagion after that and whether banks stopped lending so much, but there wasn't much of a lending product business to technology startups from investment banks. I think SVB was quite particular in its venture debt business. So I don't think that's going to have so much of an effect on technology startups. And you mentioned kind of the 72-hour period, which was very intense and specific for technology around SVB. But the medium-term impact of having that institution so ingrained in technology, is there a medium-term impact to technology and growth as a result of that? I think the answer is quite different in Europe versus the U.S. I think in the U.S., SVB was integral to the tech ecosystem. It's a bank that grew up in the 80s providing not only banking services to technology companies, but also the funds. And so it really was the center of the ecosystem over there. In the UK, the number of accounts with SVV was small, the deposits relative, and also UK is only a fraction of the European startup ecosystem or technology ecosystem. So with HSBC taking it over and backstopping the deposits, I don't think it's going to have any lasting impact. I think in the UK, what it highlights, there's nothing particular about the banking needs of a technology startup. It just highlights the lack of innovation in business banking to SMEs generally in the UK. And I very much hope that this kind of raises awareness and we might see more innovative products come to market in this space. That's great. You answered my next question around the European and US impact. So that's perfect. We jumped right into this because it feels very pertinent at this point of time in technology. But maybe we back up a little bit and just talk about Blossom Capital and how you founded the firm and why you started it. 
So I've been investing now over 10 years. I started my career at a fund called Index Ventures and I started in 2012. And back then there wasn't a lot going on in the European ecosystem. I joined Index because they were the only fund investing in Europe and the US. And so I took a view that I would join them in the London office, but engineered to spend as much time as possible in the Valley. So in my early venture career, I kind of split my time half between Europe and the US. And I got to work with some phenomenal companies like Robin Hood, the mobile brokerage from really early days. So I got to see the rise of how you build for hyper growth, how you build a world-class product and engineering team, but also grew up in the European ecosystem where it was very easily visible that great talent and ambition wasn't confined to the West Coast, that there was a next generation of entrepreneur in Europe that was just as ambitious, just as talented. And if you fast forward to 2016, 2017, they were no longer choosing to uproot and move to the Valley. You know, the Collison story of going over and leaving Ireland, well, it was incredibly competitive for talent and for capital out on the West Coast. And so that next gen of entrepreneur was starting to stay in Europe. And I saw a significant funding gap for them. And the most ambitious entrepreneurs wanted to raise capital from the West Coast funds. The West Coast funds didn't have the bandwidth or expertise to be doing early stage in Europe. And... There just weren't enough venture funds in Europe supporting those founders at the Series A stage. So I guess like any founder spotting a problem that needed solving or a gap in the market, that's where I felt excited about building my own. Um, and so it launched Blossom in 2018 with another partner who joined me from Index. And we raised that first fund, closed it in 2019. It was an $85 million fund focusing on Series A. And our strategy has remained the same since. So each fund pretty concentrated. We make five investments a year. We target 15 to 20 companies per fund, which is quite different from the average venture fund. There's normally 30 to 40 companies. And we're now investing out of our third fund, which is 475. We've raised about a billion dollars in total. But some quite high profile companies are now like checkout in the payment space, MoonPay also in financial services, and a lot of software businesses as well, like Pigment, Tines, or Spacelift. And so 24 companies and the strategy just remains the same. We've really found our constant at Series A. That's our core focus. Let's switch gears back to the market environment. There's a broader theme going on around rising interest rates, rising inflation, impact on the consumer, and then obviously impact on stock valuations or private company valuations. How is European tech, or maybe I'll make it more specific, how are you advising your companies to behave in the current environment in terms of cash burn, growth versus profitability, those type of trends? We grew up in Europe where capital was never abundant. There's always been the lamenting that you know European growth funds aren't really there, that capital comes from the US. It was never a given in those years that growth funds were going to come and invest in European startups. I think that changed in 2019 to 2022. We obviously saw an influx of capital from the US, but you don't know how long that capital is going to last. And so our advice to companies has always been grow efficiently, be in control of your own destiny. But I equally don't think the right advice is just preserve cash, be conservative, because we're investing in industries where there should be great tailwinds of growth and you should be playing into that. And if you have a competitor that is cash strapped and can't afford to invest for growth or you have a new market ahead of you, you shouldn't just be slowing down because of concerns over the economy. I mean, early stage venture is not correlated necessarily to how the economy is performing. And I would argue that there will always be capital for great companies. If the dollars that flow into venture funds are not disappearing overnight, institutional investors will continue to invest in the best venture funds, and those best venture funds will continue to gravitate towards the best companies. And so I think the founder needs to recognize, am I building a successful and viable business in which they should continue to grow and continue investing? 
or if a founder has concerns over the viability of their business, then they should be more focused on cash preservation. What are some examples of companies in your portfolio that have adapted especially well to the current environment? What do these companies have in common that are different than other companies out there? I mentioned before that all of these companies should be playing into secular trends where, you know, if you're disrupting an existing industry or creating a new market, those tailwinds should surpass or outstrip any economic headwinds. From the outset, we had very clear investment criteria. When we started in 1819, we'd already had a decade of phenomenal growth at that point. It was evident to us that a recession was going to come at some point. And so we laid out these six investment criteria to be very specific on the types of companies, founders and businesses that we would invest into, where we could believe that these companies could be huge potential outliers and they would generate hundreds of millions. They had a path to profitability. It started, we talked about the founders and the types of founders. Obviously, you have to play into very big markets. You have to believe that these markets can hold businesses of that size. And we're not talking about market sizes of one, two, five billion. I mean, you're literally talking about market sizes of trillions. And we look out, for example, payments is a market size of that size. And you see when you have unlimited TAM, how fast a business can grow. And then there are some specifics, especially investing in Europe. You have to see how these companies can scale cost-effectively and fast. So you're looking at network effects or economies of scale. You're looking for distribution advantage, by which I mean you're not just reliant on paid spend as some kind of organic or viral adoption. And critically, that you can take this product and internationalize. You can be global without almost restarting a business every time. I think that's been one of the challenges of European venture is that the companies got very stuck, focused on their domestic market. But if you think about products like Airbnb or Uber, those apps or platforms look exactly the same no matter what country you're in. They're not having to rebuild a product for a different market. So we're very focused on that, which means actually, if you follow all of those criteria, then those businesses don't need to look dramatically different in times of recession or economic slowdown. And our final point was they have to be recession-proof and that you shouldn't be playing into very cyclical industries like construction, for example. But what we see now, it's not a type of business that's doing well, but especially for our software businesses, is that you really have to prove your worth. And so ROI on your spend or value-based selling, where you can say if you spend 100K or even 500K on our software, we're saving you X in headcount, or we're driving more efficiency, or we're driving more revenue as a result. And these can't be high level arguments anymore. They have to be very specific, very granular, and detailed. So the champion internally in the org and the buyer can actually go to wherever they need to get budget from. And you know, finance and procurement have a lot more power these days, and they can really give the rationale why they need sign off for this software. When you think what we're going through right now, and you've been investing for a long time in technology here in Europe, but with a global lens. What's the best analogy of where we are in the cycle in 2013, 2014? So before the advent of some of the late stage capital that came around 2017, 2018, are we further back? How would you think about where we are if we wanted to draw a point in history in technology, access to capital and strength of technology companies? I think it goes too far to say that we're back in 09 or even kind of the early 2000s, that bubble. I think when more, we saw this in 15, 16, we course corrected before those years, everyone had been told to go for growth and then told not to, and we're having a repeat of that. There's still a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines. Great businesses are being built. There's true adoption of technology and real need. I just think we got into some crazy heady heights in 2021 and we're correcting from that, and rightly so. 
one of the things I've observed is how much governments in Europe can be helpful and or hurtful to technology. How has recent government policy in various markets in Europe helped the European tech market and encouraged growth or where can it get better? I think the European Investment Fund has been a big champion of venture capital and a big commitment to a lot of funds over Europe. And then if I look at particular countries, Macron has done a stellar job in France in terms of an enabling startup ecosystem there being a champion of tech better labor provisions. There's BPI that provide a lot of loans and equity funding to companies. You can barely find a French startup that doesn't take that funding at the beginning. And so I think that governments generally in Europe, they appreciate the value and the potential of SMEs and the growth of SMEs and what they can deliver in terms of jobs and what they can ultimately deliver in terms of contribution to GDP. And I think that has been a real change over the last 10 years in terms of supporting initiatives that will accelerate growth of SMEs. One thing I'm particularly focused on is Europe as a tech center and how it's developed. We've talked about this a little bit during this conversation around the development of Europe. Where would you rate it on a scale of one to 10 today versus where it was 10 years ago? You've been investing through that whole period and seen the evolution of the company formation. Where do you think we are now and where were we? So if we talk about Europe, I think we actually have to divide up UK and Europe. And I would say that the continent has greatly accelerated in terms of potential and actually outstripped the UK, especially hubs like Paris or Berlin, just in terms of the level of talent, in terms of regulation, in terms of we just touched on some of the government measures. And if you just look at the dollar funding that goes into European startups, that's more going on the continent than in the UK. So I think overall, like we're very positive on Europe. We hope the UK does more to enable the ecosystem here because I think we might fall foul of losing our position. But in terms of what Europe has achieved at the last 10 years, the companies speak for themselves. We couldn't have this conversation right now and not talk about AI and generative AI and other types of technologies in that vein. What are you seeing in terms of making new investments in those type of companies? And then if you can, a little bit around what your companies are doing to incorporate those type of services into their operations to increase efficiency? There's obviously a lot of excitement about the potential applications for generative AI. I think a lot of that is early. It's at the ideation stage. It's at the potential of what this technology can do. I think the more interesting, as you just asked, is how that can be embedded into existing products. And so I think that a lot of founders who have anticipated the rise of Gen AI and have thought about kind of product roadmaps in terms of what they can do And so I think the first use cases are going to be in the existing software products. You're going to see it in tools like Intercom or in Salesforce. You're going to see it in Zoom, Microsoft Teams, Google, et cetera. And it will be another at least 12 months, I'd say, before you see the startups with brand new applications using this technology. One of the questions that comes to mind when I think about technology, and you mentioned software and fintech being 70% of your portfolio, and I completely understand why you would want to focus on those applications. Do you think there are certain parts of the economy that are being left behind because of the focus on software and fintech, such as decarbonization and other things that are, quote unquote, good for the world? I wonder whether VC funding and venture capitalists are the right ones to provide capital to those initiatives. And I think VC investors are brilliant technology investors. Certain industries call for experts. And so you do have a few venture funds who are experts in those markets and will build dedicated funds just to invest into those things. But broadly, VCs 
I think should stick to software, internet, mobile, even crypto. And people who are experts in their field should be funding those types of projects. And one question is whether VC funding is the right method of funding. You have government money, you have institutional grants, you have private equity for the much more capital intensive businesses. And so there is risk of these industries getting behind, but I'm not sure that it's necessarily the VC's job to fund those initiatives. Have you seen any progress in diversity in technology during your career, either in the venture capital firms themselves or in the companies in which you're investing? And how much are you driving that at Blossom in terms of how you're investing and running your team? I think we've seen significant progress in that it's top of mind for everyone. When we invest in founders, the first things we talk about is how to build a diverse team, how to build your recruitment engine, your talent functions such that you can optimize for that. How do you think about the board composition, etc.? Questions and topics that weren't necessarily so prevalent 10 years ago or, or more. We can always be doing more. And at Blossom, we just say we lead by example, we lead by doing. And that's really, I think, how you make change. Ophelia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, recorded on Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023. If you enjoyed this show, we hope you follow on your platform of choice and tune in next week for another episode. Make sure to share and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more, visit GS.com and sign up for Briefings, a weekly newsletter from Goldman Sachs about trends shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.